Can you turn to John chapter 4, please? Let's get our Bibles. Let's turn to John chapter 4. I love how the psalmist captures awe and wonder when he says, when I think of the heavens, when I look into the universe, as I look at the stars, as I see the moon, I'm in awe. And the next thought is, why do you think of me? When I think of you and I think of your greatness, why is it that you think of me? What is it about me, Lord? Why? It doesn't make sense. You're so awesome. You're so wonderful. How is it that God not only knows us, but delights in us? We find our answer in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this chapter that we're going to be looking at over the next two mornings is a stunning revelation to us of just what our God is like. It's a stunning revelation to us of who our Lord Jesus Christ is. And so I'm thrilled to be taking this through it together. So let's read from verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to go through it section by section. Verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. What we're given here are crucial details that sets up this whole narrative for us. Jesus is traveling to Galilee from Judea, from Jerusalem. He's been there for the Passover. He had his encounter with Nicodemus, who was this religious elite who came to him in the night to probe him and to ask him questions about the kingdom of God. Jesus revealed to him that despite his great morality and goodness and religious prowess, it wasn't enough that he needed to be born again. He needed to be made new. This was a staggering thing for Nicodemus to hear. He is now journeying back to Galilee where he is based with his disciples. That's a significant journey, probably somewhere in the order of 70 to 80 miles. He's been walking some distance at this point, and he gets to the well where he's going to stop and he's going to rest. The disciples are sent off into town to gather lunch. Now, these verses, they don't strike us at this point. I mean, there's not a memory verse here, right? There's no verse you're thinking, wow, what stunning insight that is. But these verses are crucial, and I want to pick out a few details for us which we have to acknowledge to make full sense of what's coming. The first thing I want us to see is in verse 4, where we are told he had to travel through Samaria. He had to travel through Samaria. Now, which begs the question, why? Why did Jesus have to travel through Samaria? Was it the only route? Well, no, we know it wasn't the only route. It was the most direct route to Galilee. But Jesus has shown that he's only ever compelled to do one thing. He's only compelled to do the will of his Father. 
So yes, this is the most direct route, but we know that Jesus is rarely found to be in a hurry. And as we go through the text, we find he's not hurrying. He's pacing himself. He had to travel through Samaria because it seems that Jesus has work to do in this place. We're told that he came to Jacob's well. We'll make reference to that later. And that he sat down and it was about noon. It was midday. He is hot. He is tired. This is the hottest part of the day. He's sitting down to rest. But he's also waiting. Jesus is resting, but he's also waiting. Whilst his disciples have gone off into town, he knows someone is coming, someone that he's going to be meeting with. All of these details, the location, the time of day, the solitude, these are details planned by God since before there ever was a well, before there ever was a mountain, These details have been ordained for an encounter for Jesus to have. Jesus is waiting at the well. We need to understand the well is not a remarkable place. This is an ordinary place. This was the place where people would go to fetch their daily uh, water needs. And he's there waiting at this ordinary place, which is, of course, now an utterly extraordinary place on account of the fact that Jesus is there. Utterly extraordinary. We're here today in the West Point Arena. This is not a spectacular place. There's nothing extraordinary about this place. There's nothing extraordinary about a shed. But these places become utterly remarkable when we discover God waiting for us. God is with us today. Jesus is waiting for somebody to come. Don't dismiss and write off the details that created an environment for you to meet Jesus. Don't dismiss how it was you came to meet him for the first, or the family that you were in, the church that you attended, the Alpha course that you were on. All of the details have been planned by him to create an environment for us to meet him. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now, a first century person who's hearing this would immediately find this an odd thing. Why is a local woman coming to draw water at midday? Why is a local woman chosen the hottest, most inconvenient time of day to come to the well? We discover not with a cup, but with her water jar. Why is she coming to the well at this time of day? Now, let's put it another way. I can guarantee you right now, somewhere on this site, there's some wise guy taking a sneaky shower. I guarantee you right now. Why? Precisely because we're all here, right? Guaranteed, no cues, hot water. She's coming because she knows no one's going to be there. She's chosen a time of day where she knows it's going to be empty, but it's risky. You see, women would travel in groups to the well for protection in numbers. This is a risky place to be on your own, as a woman, certainly. Yet here she is, and why is she taking the risk? Why has she made herself vulnerable? And so this woman approaches the well, and what does she see? 
she sees a bearded 30-something Jewish man on his own. That's what she sees. As she approaches the well, she sees a foreign man who she's never seen before on his own. Now, we need to just appreciate that this represents the very kind of situation that a woman would not want to find herself in. Her first impression of the person that she sees is not, oh my word, I can't believe this is Jesus Christ, this is God. This is an ordinary looking Jewish man because that's what Jesus looked like. He looked like an ordinary Jewish man. So she approaches and she sees this guy here. I imagine her to be speculating and wondering who is this guy. And the next thing we find that happens, he speaks to her. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. She's shocked. Why are you talking to me? You shouldn't be talking to me. Why are you asking me for a drink? Can this man be trusted? Is this a good man? What's his agenda? What's his motive? What does he want? She has no clue that this man before her has never once had an impure thought, has never once sinned. She has no idea that this man before her is completely and utterly pure. She has no idea that this one who's asking her for a drink also is holding in tension every atom and every molecule of her being. This is the man. This is a new Adam. This is a man like no one has ever encountered before. And men, we're called to be like him. We're called to be like this man, who women can trust, who women are safe to be around. A man like Jesus. Jesus shows us what manliness is. I'm not sure how in vogue it is to be manly today in our culture. Jesus shows us manliness as God intended manliness to be. And this isn't just something for us as men to admire, but it's something for us to imitate. My wife wants me to be like this man. If you're married, your wife wants you to be like this man. If you're a single man, this is the kind of single man you're called to be like. She has no clue who this one is who is before her. What a man to bump into. She immediately identifies two obstacles that should prevent this interaction from happening. The first thing she identifies is her ethnicity. I'm Samaritan. The second thing she identifies is her gender. I'm a woman. 
She puts these obstacles before him. She says, you shouldn't be talking to me, firstly, because of my ethnicity, secondly, because of my gender. These are obstacles of the first century that should prevent this interaction from happening. And I dare say little has changed in 2,000 years, where we still build walls on the basis of race and ethnicity and gender. Why are you talking to me? And I love how Jesus responds. Let's look at it in verse 10. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. If you knew. I just love how Jesus responds. He sees this woman approaching. He discerns her anxieties. He discerns her thoughts. He knows she has no clue at this point who he is. And he says, if you knew who I am and the gift that I'm offering. You know, many people, when they first approach Christianity and Jesus, will say, what's so special about this? What's so great about Christianity? What's so great about Jesus? Those of us who share our faith, and I hope we all do who are Christians with others, we agonize when it's dismissed. Oh, if you only knew what it's like to know your sins forgiven. If you only knew what it's like to have all your shame and your guilt taken. If you only knew what it's like to have friendship with the eternal God. If you only knew what it was like to be loved and accepted and embraced by him. We agonize. If you only knew who this one is. Jesus carries on. You would ask him for living water. And she says, sir, you don't even have a bucket. And the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Isn't that an incredible reaction? He said to her, I've got living water for you. Living water. And her response, where's your bucket? Where's the, where's the bucket? She is existing within the realm of what is material, what is natural. She's looking for a material answer to what is, in fact, an immaterial question. You see, Jesus comes from a supernatural realm. Jesus has always existed, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he's coming to address a supernatural problem within her heart, a spiritual need. And she asked for a bucket. She's looking for something physical. Where is this living? Where is it? Where's your bucket? And how many of us can be like that? Where Jesus offers us living water and we're like, where's the bucket? I don't understand. I've come to Jesus and, and he hasn't yet met these material, real needs which I'm wanting for him to meet. Many of us can be dissatisfied in our Christianity because, in a sense, we're still looking for the bucket. 
Whereas what Jesus is offering us is something infinitely greater. Living water. Living water is what he's offered. Jesus, in verse 13, carries on. Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water I will give him will never get thirsty again. Listen to this. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Wow. Now just imagine it. A drink that springs up to eternal life. A drink that gives everlasting life. How good does that, whether you're a Christian, which most of us are or not, that is amazing. Is such a thing possible? Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here and draw water. This is the effect the gospel should have. This is the effect that God, when we have given the gospel, the cynic might say, do you know what? I don't know if this is true or not, but I want it to be. The cynic might say, look, I'm not convinced by this, but hey, if what you're saying is true, that sounds amazing, eternal life. She's saying, I want this water. This sounds like I would be transformed by having something like this. When we preach the gospel and share the gospel with others, do we do so in such a way that elicits that kind of response? I want this. Jesus is drawing her in. Now, the question I've got for you is, what would you now do at this point? You're Jesus and, he, and she's saying, I want this. What would you now do? Fantastic. Let's go to the response area. We've got some ministry team people. What we'll do is we'll lay hands on you. We'll pray in faith and you will receive. That's probably what we would do. We would, we would be in faith to then lead her to receive and to respond. What does Jesus do next? Verse 16, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. Now, does that not represent a clunky gear change? Go call my husband? I don't have a husband, she says. Okay, so she's dealt with that one. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The whole atmosphere in this moment has suddenly changed, has suddenly become really awkward, <laughs> really awkward. What is Jesus doing here? Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus take this woman who seems to be ready to receive and suddenly bring up something which is clearly very painful to her? What is Jesus doing? Why is she here at this time of day? Why has she made herself vulnerable? Why is she taking the risks? It's clear that she's an outcast. It's clear that she's here because she wants to avoid everybody. It's clear that she's someone that is avoided by others. It's clear she's here because she needs to be on her own because she is hounded by shame and a sense of isolation. 
What is Jesus doing here? I tell you what he isn't doing. He isn't giving her a fast food, easily palatable gospel that skirts around the issues of the heart. He's addressing the, the foundational pain in her life. He's the great physician. A few months ago, I received the call from my son's school, one of those, and I'm, and I'm told, your son Will's fallen off the monkey bars. He's hurt, he's hurt his arm pretty bad. You're going to have to come and get him. It's like, unbelievable. So I, I drive into school and find poor guy screaming. He's in, he's in so much pain. He's got a lovely big bump on his arm. And, and it, looked, it was horrible. The ambulance didn't come. So we, the three of us had to get him into my car. So it took three of us to get him into the car. I drive off to A&E, poor guy's crying his eyes out. I get to the hospital, and I open the door, and I can't move him. He's in so much pain. I, every time I touch him, he screams. I'm like, I don't know what to do. How do I get him out of the car? I find some paramedics. They come over. They take a look at him. It's like, okay, we've got a floppy arm. Let's get the Entonox. So they came round with the Entonox, the gas and air, and they put it on his face, and he literally, in moments, goes from screaming to laughing, and he literally, literally, he said to me, this is honestly what he said, he said, wow, dad, this stuff's great. <laughs> and I was like, it was, it was so confusing. How can it have such an immediate effect upon him? And then a few moments later, he's screaming again. More Entonox, more gas and air. And this cycle went on for a few hours. The doctors came over and they said, uh, when was the last time he ate? I was like, well, a few hours ago, because we think we're going to need to operate. I'm like, really? We think it's pretty bad. So he goes off and he has, he has the x-ray and uh, gas in there. And he comes back and then the doctor says, right, do you want to come over? Let me show you what's happened. Now, I'm one of those dads that takes a photo of his kid's x-rays. <laughs> and I've got a pit. Now, if you're squeamish, you need to turn away now, because we've got a photo of it. That's pretty impressive. My wife's not enjoying this. Sorry, darling. When I saw that, I knew we were going to have an operation. I knew it. No amount of gas and air was going to fix those bones. No amount of gas and air were going to straighten out those bones. We were going to have to operate. And the operation happened, and praise God for the NHS. What a gift to us in this country. God's grace to us. I know many of you work for the NHS, and we love you and you appreciate you. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is holding up an x-ray. He's holding up an x-ray. He loves this woman too much just to give her gas in air. He loves her too much not to address the fundamental pain in her life. What is he doing in verse 18? He's saying, I see you. I see you. I see your pain. I see your hurt. I see your brokenness. I know you. Isn't that an awesome thing? Preaching that 
skirts around the issues of the heart and sin, preaching that doesn't give a full gospel, the prosperity gospel, motivational life skills preaching, is entonauts. Might make you feel good for a few moments. Then what? What is your entonauts? What is your go-to place to get your quick relief? Jesus loves her too much to leave her as she is. It seems this woman has been drinking water from a well that has never satisfied her. It seems that she has been let down and abused over and over and over in her life. We don't know all of the circumstances, we don't know all of the details, but one thing we know for sure is that she's yet to find a husband who will never leave her. She's yet to find a husband who is faithful. She's yet to find a husband who will be by her side forever and ever. And here we find Jesus at Jacob's well drawing her to himself. And it, and it makes us think of the scene in Genesis 29 where Jacob met his bride. It makes us think of when Jacob laid eyes on Rachel for the first time. And you may remember it. And he sees her and she is, it says, beautiful. He sees her at the well, and, she, and he's so amazed by her beauty and her appeal that he, he bursts into tears in front of her. This is the bride that I want. This is the chosen bride for me. And in this new covenant of grace, we find that the pure one is Jesus. And we find that the bride of his choice is this woman, and messed up oddballs like us. We find that in this covenant of grace, Jesus goes after the broken, the hurting, the alienated, the marginalized, the maligned, and he says, I will have you. And so she is really a picture of all of us, and she is particularly a picture of the church who John elsewhere refers to as the bride of Christ. Who's the bride that he chooses? He chooses women and men who are broken and hurting and says, I want you. I will have you. And he is the faithful husband who will never leave or forsake, who is there to the end. The faithful husband is our Lord Jesus Christ. No barrier of gender or ethnicity or sin or shame is too great for Jesus to overcome in finding his bride and winning his bride. What a glorious God he is. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet, which is possibly the biggest understatement in the Bible. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Now, this is an interesting response. She's just had her whole life read before her, and then she seems to ask him a theological question. 
Our fathers worshipped on the mountain. You Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. It seems that she's diverting the attention away from herself. But nevertheless, this is a massively important theological question which results in Jesus giving her an insight and a piece of revelation so stunning that we have to just be amazed that he's chosen this moment to reveal something of the plan of God in reaching and saving and loving. This is what Jesus says in response. He told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you, and I just see him pointing at her, when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What Jesus is saying is like, look, the debate, the issue isn't one of geography. Because something is happening, something is to take place, which will result in the Father receiving worship. And and where this worship is going to come from is no longer dependent upon geography of mountains, of buildings, of arenas in the Devonshire countryside or in sheds in the bottom of the garden. He's going to do a work in you. His spirit is going to come into you so that true worship of the Father is going to happen in spirit. See, what Jesus does is he doesn't just mend the bones. He doesn't just tie them back together. The work of Jesus is to breathe a new creation into being. So he breathes into this woman a new creation. And what this establishes in her is true worship. The worship of the Father in spirit and in truth. That is the miracle of salvation that the Holy Spirit performs in each of us. Does it not stagger you that the one who created this universe, the one who set the stars in space, this awesome God, has determined to live in you and to make his home in you and in I and to draw us into the worship of the Father She hears these words. He speaks about the coming hour. The hour has come in him, in who he is, full of the Spirit, and it's coming. There is work to be done which is going to result in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But how is that achieved? And we're drawn to think of the cross. And we're drawn to think of the pure, spotless, beautiful, radiant King of heaven becoming defiled and broken and blooded and bruised and crucified in order that those who are broken and ugly and defiled 
and maligned might become beautiful, restored, glorious through relationship with him. He speaks to this woman knowing all that he's going to do to establish her in a true worship of God. And I'm going to finish by reading these last verses. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything. So it's like the penny's beginning to drop. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Wow. I am he. We're going to see tomorrow the consequences of this transformed life. This woman has been taken on this unbelievable journey. She met the man, the Adam, who knows her intimately and is not ashamed to be in relationship with her. I'm so grateful that that is exactly how God has related to me and to many of us. The grace of God is astounding. Why don't we stand and I'll finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your Son. We are amazed when we look at him and we see how he is able to cross over all boundaries, all obstacles of ethnicity, of gender, all the things which man creates to bring division. We thank you for the grace of God that demolishes those obstacles and walls in order to bring restoration and life to lost, hurting souls. We thank you that you do so much more than mend the bones. We thank you that you bring about new creation in us. We thank you for placing your spirit in us, and we praise you that we can now cry out, Abba, Father, on account of being filled with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this woman and for her example to us, and we praise you that you are here with us today, and you've got much to do in our lives. We love you and we glorify you together. Amen. Amen.